Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, February 12th, and we are talking about tech stocks and their earnings. I'm your host, Stone Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's expert early estimator of every enterprise's earnings evidence, Brian Faroldi. Brian, how you doing? Doing great, Dylan. Great to be back again. Yep. It's it's nice to be back in the swing of things. I think earnings season can be hectic sometimes. It's also really fun, right? I mean, we, we ultimately, when we're investing and we're looking at businesses, there are maybe four, possibly one or two more events every year that meaningfully change the direction of a business or your outlook on a business or drive what your expected value of the business is going to be in the future. Four of them are going to be earnings releases. There might be some incredible event that happens related to a product or something like that. But these are really the moments where we get our check-in on our businesses and see how they're doing. Yes, and I would actually argue that the earnings season we're in right now is the most important one for the year because this is when companies kind of set their agenda for the year ahead. They give ex- investors uh, expectations. They talk about trends. So we were spoiled for choice this week for businesses to talk about. That's right. Yeah, for the most part, we are talking uh, you know businesses that have fiscal years that line up with the calendar year. Every now and then, you get one of those oddball companies that winds up for whatever reason. Uh, they have their they all have their own reasons um, deciding to align slightly differently because of how revenue winds up coming in and things like that. But yeah, we're going to be talking about a couple businesses uh, that have been affected. I would say pretty dramatically by COVID in in different ways um, and by recent events in different ways and getting a sense of what's going on with them. We're going to be talking about Blackline. We're going to be talking about Uber and we're going to be talking about Twitter. Uh, So I think two businesses, Brian, that people know very well, uh, just as consumers, and then one that I'm sure a lot of people have never heard of before. And that's a shame if they have it, because we've talked up Blackline several times on the Industry Focus podcast before. So yeah, it's probably the one company that we have to explain what it does ahead of time. So Blackline is a software as a service company that is focused on uh, continuous accounting. They basically take the archaic way that our accounting is done today and turn it into a real-time automated process. Uh, this company was uh, was founded by uh, an accountant, and they have done a fabulous job at con- convincing enterprises across the globe to switch over to their automated accounting software. Yep. And it it sounds like a perfectly boring business. In in a lot of ways, it is. The performance of the business, however, has been absolutely incredible. Uh, Brian, I look at this space and I say, uh, this is a very focused company with a product that meets a very specific audience. They're very good at what they do. They don't have a lot of competition and they're harnessing the SaaS model in a way that has just provided excellent returns for shareholders. You, you, you nailed it. Again, it, it sounds like a very boring business to get to know. Uh, this company came public in 2016, and it's up 468% uh, as, uh, as I type this. So just a slow and steady uh, compounding machine. And I guess I should qualify the slow. They've been putting up 20%-ish revenue growth basically since they came public. And we basically saw more of that in the most recent quarter. Uh, so Blackline added 207 new customers in the fourth quarter. Uh, that brought their grand total to 3,433. A metric that we check with any SaaS company is dollar bait net retention rate, retention, the good one. And uh, Blackline reported 106% for the quarter. That figure was down pretty substantially. This company regularly reports between 110 
and 120%. Not all that surprising given how hard it has been for them to get their foot in the door with, uh, with, with new businesses. So that will be a metric to watch going forward. So I would say it was okay, not great, but the customer ads were pretty good. You boil that together, though, and we saw 19% revenue growth to $96 million. Uh, that did beat Wall Street's expect, uh, expectations by quite a bit. And a, st- a sticking point here that I love about this business, gross margin, 83%. Yep, that's darn high. That's going to leave a lot of money left over as you get down to those lower items on the income statement, Brian. It certainly is, and the company is spending pretty aggressively uh, to to hire. To uh, they just uh, actually acquired another business, which we'll get to uh, in a little bit. But uh, even despite that spending, uh, they are profitable on an adjusted basis. They actually grew their net income by fifty percent uh, uh, year over year to thirteen million or twenty one cents a share. Uh, Wall Street was expecting much lower than that, so it was a beat on both the uh, the top and bottom line. And if you zoom out to the full year, the results were pretty good too. Uh, revenue grew 22%, not bad for a pandemic year. Uh, non-gap net income came in at $46 million, and they produced $35 million in free cash flow. So as we teed up at the top of the show, a really sleepy under undercover business that it just produces great results. Yeah. Outside of the numbers for this company, when, you, when you're looking at the earnings results, what else popped out to you? So the big news here was that 2020 was the year when the founder and CEO, her name is Therese uh, Tucker, uh, she she founded this business uh, more than uh, more than a decade ago. She decided to take a step back and become the executive chair, and she turned over uh, the CEO role to one of her longtime uh, lieutenants. So that to me was the big news uh, from 2020. I do like that it was a pretty smooth transition. Again, she's handing this to somebody that's been at the company for uh, over three years, and she's staying on the board. So. That was my takeaway from the year. Uh, however, the other, more on the more exciting news, uh, the company acquired a, a, a business called uh, Remilia, which is an quote unquote. AI-powered accounts receivable uh, p- uh, platform. So basically, it helps companies to automate the accounts receivable aspect of their business. And uh, for businesses that have uh, cash concerns, uh, getting paid uh, on your accounts receivable is an incredibly important thing. So uh, Blackline built in this new tool into its, its service that helps to automate that process. The the exciting thing there for investors is that Blackline believes that that more than doubles the company's addressable market opportunity. And in case you think accounting software is really niche, they see their worldwide opportunity at $28 billion. That is a huge number. So that was an exciting development from 2020. Yeah. And for context, this is just about a $7 billion business. So you mentioned the incredible run that shares have gone on since going public. Uh, I think a, a five-bagger, at least. Um, even with that, Still, kind of in that sweet spot, Brian, of you know that that two billion to ten billion figure, where you know if if things go right over the next five to ten years, it seems like there's still plenty of growth ahead of them. Yeah, I can see this company growing its top line at a high teens, maybe low twenty percentish range uh, for a long, long time. And a big part of this company's growth strategy is actually to partner uh, with other companies to help them sell. So they have a global distribution agreement with uh, with SAP, and they have smaller deals that they've signed with companies like uh, like Solex. They pointed out that in the quarter, seventy percent of their big deals that they signed with new customers came from leveraging these partnerships. I really like that strategy of partnering with these big companies that have relationships with lots of other uh, customers to get their foot in the door uh, because that lowers the burden on them and it gives them a, a, a big partner in the place. So that strategy is clearly uh, paying off. Now for the year ahead, management kind of tempered uh, investors' expectations a little bit. 
They're calling for revenue growth of about 17% at the midpoint, and they said that they're going to start to spend pretty aggressively to build out um, their their own infrastructure. So because of that, they're actually estimating that adjusted earnings are going to fall in half uh, in 2021. I think because of that, we saw the stock slide off in in response to the earnings, but that to me is okay spending if it sets them up for long-term success. So to me, the big takeaway here is the company continues to execute and the thesis is on track. Yeah, I, I'm sure there are probably some people listening to this saying, "Well, okay, this this company is up more than 100% over the past year. We're seeing its uh, founder CEO step away." You mentioned that the uh, Dabner number, that that dollar-based net retention number, is a little lower than it's been. Um, there are there are possibly some question marks in what has been a pretty smooth performer for a while, Brian. That's fair, and yeah, there's. I mean, it's uh, if you want to take the skeptical view, sure. But to to me, uh, I think that uh, I like that uh, Therese Tucker is is not. She's not stepping away completely. She's just focusing on the bigger decisions. So she still has her hand uh, majorly in this company. Um, so that gives me that gives me comfort. And it's not like the company is predicting that like revenue growth is going to fall apart. Uh, 17% top line growth is pretty consistent with what we've seen. And it also, I think, sets the company up to outperform expectations, which is probably something that this new management team uh, is looking to do. On the bottom line side, it's definitely a trade-off between profits now and profits later, but they're also still estimating to be profitable. So, my view, and I'm been, I'm been a shareholder of this company for, for many, many years, is I'm still very interested in owning this company for a long time. Yeah, I think this is a this is a watchlist stock, and it should for me at least, and it should be for, I think for a lot of people. It it reminds me of some other businesses that we've seen be wildly successful. Operates maybe in a little bit of a smaller market, but you know, it, in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of Twilio, where it's you know it's a product, it's a software service that people who need it love it. It, it solves a very specific use case for people that are in the weeds. And I think what that does is it forces a lot of other people to underestimate the opportunity with what they're doing. And it also, I think, to some extent, creates um, some insulation from competitive pressures. I think so too. That was this, that would the the competitive pressure that you just mentioned was the reason that I got interested in this company many years ago when I was digging into their annual report. I looked at the competition stage and they basically said we are the only ones doing what we're doing. They said that they compete with some smaller aspects of companies like like Oracle, but they are the only pure play uh, focused company. I really like that, especially when the opportunity that they point out is so large. Yeah, it's nice when you don't have to compete against anybody, <laughs> you know, yes. and you're you're just playing a, a game of shooting hoops. You're not playing basketball or one on one or anything like that. Um, Brian, the, the second company that we're going to be checking in on needs very little introduction, uh, and that is that is Uber uh, ticker U B E R. This is the well, it started as the mobility company, and it's quickly blossomed from transportation as a service into uh, what do you want? We will get it to you. Also, if you'd like to go somewhere, we can get you there as well. Um, it, it's kind of amazing to see the transformation that this business has gone through in the last year. It really is. And uh, as we're going to break into the numbers, uh, I was really impressed to see just how quickly they pivoted uh, from a mobility company to a delivery company. That is the big benefit of of the optionality embedded in uh, in this network. They were pretty well positioned to 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 uh, withstand an enormous decline in their mobility uh, the mobility business. They didn't predict it necessarily, but it's nice that they could shift because they needed to. Yeah, I mean, if you look just 
at the numbers, no context, it doesn't look great, right? Like Q4 revenue, 3.2 billion, which is up quarter over quarter, uh, 13%, but down 16% year over year. And this was, you know, a business where growth is such a huge part of the story. And you look at the dynamics within that that revenue top line, delivery revenue grew 19% quarter over quarter, 224% year over year, while mobility revenue grew 8% quarter over quarter and declined 52% year over year. So what we're seeing is the massive rise in what they are able to do specifically in takeout delivery and getting food from restaurants to people and having that offset a very large decline that we've seen with mobility for them because people are simply traveling less and they're out less due to COVID. That's an incredible. That's an incredible turnaround of events, and you're actually digging into the uh, the the number of uh, of bookings that they had. Their delivery business is uh, almost eighty percent bigger uh, than their mobility business in uh, in 2020. Uh, that is an astounding change of events. It is, and they actually put a pretty fine point on it in their investor presentation. They put it in big letters. They said delivery provided a natural hedge to mobility in 2020. I think they're probably pretty happy that they made the investments that they did. We're going to talk about it in a little bit, but this is not the end of these investments for them. They are only going to be focusing more and more in this space. I do want to touch on some of the specific numbers, though, that we saw. Um, The losses that have been there for this company in general. And they are quite big. They continue to be quite big. Uh, the the net loss attributable to Uber was 968 million uh, for the quarter. Um, big big figure, Brian. No surprise there, given where this company has been. Um, some of the key business metrics. Just checking in on those monthly active platform customers down 16% year over year. You can think of that kind of in the same way you would monthly actives for like a social media type business. Um, and for the full year, just putting some more numbers to the decline in mobility. Trips overall down 27% year over year. So, so those are some trends that I have to imagine are going to reverse course as we start to get a clearer and clearer picture of a post-COVID world. More people get vaccinated, and the return uh, to normal is is something that we start to see more and more of. Nice to see that they're able to weather things with the delivery business. We're really, I think, just in the beginning of this business segment for them becoming a much larger part of the thesis, though. And that is, as you as you just said, becoming a huge part of the thesis uh, moving forward. I mean, just a, a year or two ago, it was kind of a nice to have optionality. Now it's become the main growth driver. And yeah, to your point, the thing that is going to be most interesting for me to watch is how quickly the mobility segment returns. Uh, sure, we saw a little bit of uh, quarter over quarter growth in 2020, but the thing I wonder about is will people be willing to get into uh, strangers' cars in 2021 and beyond once we get the all clear? That I don't know right now. Yeah, I could see that being a hurdle for some people. Maybe people who don't have cars is not as much of an option. You know, you you have to get from A to B, and if you don't have a car, you know, if you're like me, um, you're you're going to be using ride hailing, but trying to be as careful as you can. Um, to put a a number on it, and I think this is absolutely astounding. You look at the revenue mix that they had in 2019. Delivery was just over 400 million dollars. Mobility was three billion dollars. 2020 mobility 1.4 billion and these are for the final three months ended in December delivery almost even 1.3 billion so it went from being a fraction of what was happening in the mobility segment to basically on par I have to imagine as we return mobility is going to ramp back up but the company is investing very heavily in delivery what we've seen them do is go from 
focusing on the Uber Eats side to expanding that into grocery and now also expanding that into alcohol delivery. The company acquired Drizzly, and uh, that was a $1.1 billion deal. Majority of that going to be paid in stock. Uh, for anyone unfamiliar, I've, I've used the service. Um, it is a, an online alcohol marketplace. And so basically, the same way you would order takeout from a restaurant, you can order takeout or delivery alcohol. You know, if you're if you're traveling, and in my case, this is when I used it, uh, and I was quarantining after doing some traveling around the holidays, was able to get a delivery nice and easy. Um, and and what I see with this, Brian, and, and them kind of building out the portfolio is saying, we want anything that you are trying to get anywhere to funnel through us. That's basically the business model for Uber at this point. I think that's a great acquisition. And, you know, Uber today is a $110 billion company. So this only cost them uh, $1 billion. I think that that is a, is a great move. And it should, as you point out, continue to build on their, uh, the usefulness of their delivery services. So the kind of uh, Goldilocks scenario for investors is the mobility businesses bounce back strongly in 2021 and beyond. And all that momentum that they picked up with delivery just continues to shine through. Uh, if that's the case, there is a bull case for owning this stock. I think that's true. And I think what we're going to see in the coming quarters is more and more emphasis from Uber on their subscription business. Um, and, and I think maybe this is a part that people have slept on a little bit with them, but it has very quickly become a pretty sizable number of people. Uh, between Uber Pass, Eats Pass, and Postmates Unlimited, the company has 5 million members. Uh, and the membership program that they have is in 16 different countries. So with all of these, people are paying a monthly fee. Uh, in the case of Uber Pass, $25 a month. In the case of Eats Pass and Postmates, I think it's about $10 a month. And for that, they get these benefits. They range from discounted rides to free food delivery, free grocery delivery, if it's over a certain amount, all these different things. It isn't hard to squint, Brian, and see the bundled approach making the membership model incredibly attractive. And then the membership model being something that differentiates them from Lyft and creates demand within their services. Totally. The the membership and subscription model, I think, could go a long way to engender brand loyalty, especially if they roped in some kind of rewards program uh, into this. I mean, right now... Uh, I don't, I don't honestly see much of a difference as from a consumer from using Uber and Lyft. So it's just going to be about cost. But if you can build in and convince people to pay a subscription fee, kind of like an Amazon Prime, uh, that could be a major tailwind for the business long term. Right. Yeah. Because getting things from A to B is, is kind of a commodity in a way, right? Like you don't care which ride hailing service gets you from your house to the restaurant. So long as you get there and it's uneventful, right? Like you don't want a story coming out of that. Um, and and I think what this is 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 an effort for them to build loyalty, build repeat business. What'll be fascinating for me to see is okay, you're you're getting you know ten dollars or in some cases twenty five dollars a month. How much does it cost for them to offer the benefits that come with that? Because you can do the back of the envelope math pretty quickly and say, you know, say you do like a blended average of about $15 a month in terms of what people are paying. You get 5 million people paying that over the course of the year, Brian, that's $900 million. That's, that's a pretty decent amount of money. But what does it cost for them to fulfill all of the things that are associated with that? It could be a loss leader for a while, but at some point it could become something that is a little bit like Amazon Prime, a little bit like the Costco membership model where it's actually a source of revenue for them and, and, and one that does not wind up eating into their margins. 
I think the bigger story for them is they should price it uh, aggressively just to get people to to use it because as we've seen with services like Netflix and Disney Plus, if people value a service, you can raise prices on them and they will not go anywhere. The same thing with Amazon Prime, the same thing with a Costco membership. The whole name of the game early on is get people to to sign up. So yes, I agree with you. We don't know what the unit, unit economics of this business are like, but the company has been posting losses, huge losses, uh, ever since it founded, and investors have been willing to swallow those again and again and again. So uh, this is something that investors should definitely watch, and I think it's a good move. Yeah, I, I think so. And you know, obviously, the the market has only been so phased by the decline in mobility because. Uber shares are pretty much at all-time highs. And and I was surprised, Brian, in researching the show. Uh, since IPO, Uber is narrowly a market beater. I didn't expect that. I don't, I don't know if you would have thought that. Um, but it has proven to be a, a market beater. I think the way it's positioning itself is smart, given where the industry is going. I think it creates a lot of problems for a company like Lyft, because they also have their own membership model. I haven't seen nearly as much information about it. It it seems to be very similar. They're doing a $20 a month model uh, with Lyft Pink, but the offering does not cover as many use cases. It's much more mobility focused. And frankly, I mean, Lyft's portfolio isn't nearly as deep as Uber's. And so that could be one of the things, we've talked about it so much, Uber being the bigger company. This could be what really separates Uber and Lyft long-term. I think so, and uh, especially from the from the investment angle. And yeah, you we pointed out uh, that's great that they are a market beater since coming public. Uh, them and Snapchat, boy, have they had a turnaround in 2020, huh? Yeah, and it's and it's fun to see it. You know, we I am happy to be wrong about something performing well because it means that people weren't left holding the bag on something that they bought. You know, um, but you know, th- this is something where it's it's nice to revisit the way we looked at a company originally and what it has turned into, Brian. That's always why it's important to check in on things. Totally. And good for Uber shareholders if you've held on this whole time. Yeah. And, and you know, speaking of, with or the third company we're going to be talking about, Twitter, I will say I've been someone who has been happy to watch Twitter from the sidelines for a while. My concern has always been on their ad dynamics and the fact that prices just plummet, plummet, plummet. Um, this has proven to be a, a pretty decent stock to own, Brian. Yeah, we saw a lot of things happen in the world in 2020, and uh, Twitter definitely took uh, full advantage of that. And we saw uh, more strength out of the company uh, in the fourth quarter. Uh, so the big metric to track here is just, uh, they call it monetizable daily active users. Uh, that figure grew 27% in the fourth quarter to $192 million. Uh, As usual, the split out there is very dominated by international. So $37 million in the U.S., $155 million uh, international. National. Uh, what was exciting uh, from for investors is that they, they were able to pump out, um, they grow their ad impressions by 35%. So while there was some decline in cost uh, per ad, the company grew its top line 28% during the quarter to $1.3 billion. For comparison, Wall Street was only expecting $1.2 billion. So the company really outperformed on the top line. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, I think Twitter might be one of those businesses that doesn't need advertising. I don't, I've, Brian. I don't know if you've ever seen a TV ad for Twitter. I don't think I have because they they manage to get so much free publicity, even for being as mature as they are, and for having the user base that is surprisingly as small as it actually is. Yeah, they have an outsized influence on media. There's no doubt, and I think a big part of that is their, uh, you know, politicians are there, celebrities are there. You can go there and learn all kinds of information. So I'm someone that uses Twitter uh, daily, so I understand why it's done so well. <laughs> You're not going to work a plug in there? Come on. 
Uh, you gotta okay, plug follow, the handle. Follow me on <laughs> at Brian Feraldi, and you are at Wiley Lewis. But I am not nearly as active. Brian's the better follow. I'm 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 totally comfortable saying that. I am much more of a lurker when it comes to Twitter, uh, and I've been a lurker in in terms of you know the stock. It, it's been something that I've I've watched on the side. Like I said, um, it's proven to be in some ways a great stock to own. I do look at some of these growth rates though, and I and I wonder, Brian. I mean, this seems in a lot of ways like a mature business that really has the audience that it's going to have. And for them, the trick is going to be, how do we continue to monetize this in a way that's novel and produces growth? That's always been my concern too. I've never been a shareholder uh, of this of this company for exactly the reason you said. I've said, well, it seems to be much more of a of a niche product. I mean, people that are on Twitter tend to be very active on, on Twitter, and uh, it's not something that a lot of people are going to want to use the same way they want to use Instagram or Facebook or even or even Snapchat. So I also have had those questions about how monetizable is the platform, how much can it grow? But they continue to put up a pretty impressive number. And we just covered the top line. And again, the top line grew 28% last quarter to $1.3 billion. Uh, the rest of the income statement uh, actually looked pretty good. Uh, gross margin came in at 66%. Uh, that was down a little bit year over year, but still pretty strong uh, overall. Uh, costs only grew across the board about, 20, uh, about 21%. So when you factor those things together, uh, the company had a lot of operating leverage built into it. So its adjusted earnings actually grew 52%. Uh, last quarter to 38 cents per share. Uh, that beat estimates by uh, by by seven cents. Um, the full year numbers were not quite as good, but they were okay overall. In 2020, revenue grew 7%, uh, and it reported actually a non-GAAP uh, net loss because its first and second quarters uh, were so tough. But that shows that the company is building momentum right now, and its growth is accelerating. That gets investors excited. It does. And I mean, I, I think outside of the numbers, there are some interesting things here going on with the business as well. I mean, when you have a more mature platform, you, you have to experiment a little bit more and try to bring different monetizable activity into the space. It's it's true of just being in social media in general, right? Because someone's going to roll out a feature, everyone's going to love it, and then other people are going to figure out how they can bring it onto their platform to remain competitive. But I think it's particularly important in Twitter's case where they need to make sure that they're maintaining loyalty with the real diehard users that they have. Totally. And that is one complaint that I have had about Twitter and a lot of users have had about Twitter is they have been really slow uh, to innovate and roll out new and, uh, and useful features. I mean, you still can't edit your posts once you have on Twitter. You have to delete them if you made a mistake and, and repost it. Uh, but they did call out in, in, in the call in the shareholder letter that they are uh, launching. They have launched some new uh, ancillary products and services. Uh, one of the ones is called uh, Fleets, which they call a quote unquote low pressure way to ease easily join the conversation. They do point out that some of their users say there's um, they don't like that tweets last forever and that you that they're always public uh, and they're out there forever. So Fleets is kind of one of their answers to that, uh, to give people a low pressure way to, to uh, participate in the platform. They also launched a new newsletter feature. It's almost like a Substack, so that you can actually build a newsletter uh, for your audience right through Twitter. Uh, that's a neat feature. They also pointed out that they're experimenting with something called um, uh, Spaces, which allows you to use your voice uh, to tweet. So that way people, can, I think, can hear uh, small sound bites. So they are starting to, um, to innovate on the platform from the user side. 
Importantly, they actually rolled out some new innovations for advertisers too. Uh, so they relaunched this uh, this thing called Mobile Application Promotion or MAP, which basically in, inserts a whole range of product improvements uh, for advertisers to make sure that their message gets out to the audience more effectively. They noted that advertisers are loving this and they saw enormous growth uh, from advertisers in the fourth quarter because of this. So that's good to see that there is some in- innovation happening behind the scenes. It's always good when you're talking social media, Brian, to remember who the true customer is, right? <laughs> we are the product. And uh, sometimes we need to remind ourselves that. Uh, I, I, that said, I do think the idea of newsletter functionality is a very interesting one with a place like Twitter, because um, if, if you spend any time on there and you follow people that spend a lot of time on there, you'll notice that people build followings and increasingly we're seeing a lot of people that were reporters or were insiders somewhere go from being part of a big outlet to going independent. And they're doing things on Substack, like you mentioned, right? And they're and they're creating a newsletter experience and, and they're really playing on the loyalty that they have as an individual and an individual brand. Um, there are so many businesses that operate in that space. There's Substack, there's Patreon, where a lot of those individuals use to you know actually uh, collect funds and, and get support from fans. It seems like there's something there for Twitter if it's an audience and, and a market that they're worth uh, that they think is worth exploring. It totally is. I, I think that that was a great move on their part to, to do so. And one of the things that they noted on the call uh, they were asked about is, uh, are you going to offer subscriptions uh, in some way where I don't know, either users have to pay uh, or or perhaps pe- they, people will get paid to uh, to post content. Uh, they did say it is something that is on their to-do list and they are looking at it. They don't expect to launch anything in 2021, but they did say keep an eye out for 2022. That could be a Business, that could potentially be a business model changing innovation if they do launch some kind of subscription product on the platform. Yeah, and it would be super high margin, right? I mean, that's that's the nice thing about where they are in terms of flexibility is if if they're allowing people to to collect payments and that kind of thing, you could take a very small cut of that as a business and wind up with pretty happy creators, pretty happy followers, and some high margin revenue coming in for you as well. Yep, just more optionality for the uh, for the platform. Uh, so Twitter doesn't give um, Twitter give did give some some guidance actually for 2021. They did note on the call that they were going up against some pretty tough comps uh, in 2020 uh, from 2020. But they did say in the first quarter uh, they expect to actually grow their user base by another uh, 20%. So it appears that the momentum that they built up in Q4 is carrying through, which is good to see considering that the uh, the fourth quarter had the uh, the election uh, going for it. For the full year, they're estimating that their revenue uh, for the first quarter revenue will be about a billion dollars. That represents year over year growth of uh, 25%. So pretty good numbers that they expect to happen right out of the gate. Yeah, those are strong given the maturity of the platform. And, And like we said, you know, just kind of where they've been as a company for so long. That's that's correct. All right, Dylan. So we talked about Twitter. We talked about Uber. We talked about Blackline. Any of these companies strike you as the best buy right now? Uh, of the three, I'm taking Blackline. So I am I am not a shareholder of any of them, um, but I I think Blackline would be my preference out of the three. Um, I see some interesting stuff going on under the hood at Uber, and I think there there's some interesting potential there. I have not been a fan of the business in the past because of how they've handled certain things with drivers, and um, I think they're getting better at it, but they still have some ways to go there. Uh, Twitter continues to strike me as a mature business that. I have a hard time getting excited about. 
and and you throw in all of the I mean we didn't even really touch on it Brian but just all of the platform issues and how they've been in the news for so many things outside of what they do at core as a business um, and and I think that could be a headache that winds up getting pretty loud at some point for them it's an existential risk for them so I think that's my order is we got Blackline we got Uber and then we have Twitter and third what about you uh, for me, Black Wine is the number one by far uh, here. Uh, like you, I have some big questions about uh, Uber, although I am pretty impressed with the moves that they have made and considering what they did in 2020 compared to what I expected them uh, to do. So that is a better business than I think I assumed. Uh, I'm still not that interested in becoming a shareholder, given that they're allergic to profits and they haven't proven that their model can be profitable. Uh, I think the strong number two between these three is is Twitter, though, because the model is uh, profitable. And I myself am fully addicted to Twitter, so I can't imagine myself leaving the platform. And I do see some optionality uh, for the company in the future. But from a dollar basis, there's no doubt that Blackwine is number one by far. But I'm going to put Twitter at number two. I like that, Brian. I think it's good when we disagree with each other a little bit, you know? Mix it up, give some different perspectives. That's what that's what it's all about here at the Fool. We need to timestamp this just like we did with DocuSign <laughs> versus Upwork and come back in a year and three years and see who was right. You know, the best thing about that, Brian, is uh, you were right, but I was I was still a shareholder. You're so right. it worked out. <laughs> just goes to show you don't have to have ego when it comes to investing. Your friend can be right, and you can still make money along the way if you listen to him. <laughs> That's right, as long as you buy good businesses. <laughs> Brian, uh, thanks for the suggestion on DocuSign, and also thank you for joining me on today's show. Anytime. Have a great long weekend, Dylan. Yeah, you too. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus@fool.com or tweet us at MFIndustryFocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show. The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today. And thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Oh,